you hear the egalitarian clarion call everywhere. Everything should be equal. Everything should be equally distributed. We should strive for equity. It's like wrong, especially if you're a conservative. Wrong. What we want are just hierarchies of competence. Not everyone's a neurosurgeon. You know, if your father has a brain tumor, you probably want a hierarchy of competence for neurosurgeons so you can pick the one that's the best so that he might not die. That's what a hierarchy of competence is for. For the postmodernists, there's no hierarchy that isn't based on power. Well, because they think the world runs on power. And that's why they're willing to use power to get what they want because it's the only thing they believe in. But a valid hierarchy of competence, it's God, we need those things, man. We need the best plumbers. We need the best contractors. We need the best, we need, we need the best carpenters. We need the best lecturers. There has to be a, a hierarchy of quality. And not only so that we know who the best are and can reward them properly, but so that we can reward them so they keep being the best. It's like, you know, if, if you have a great educator, if you have a great leader, if you, if you have a great thinker, you want to reward them so they keep thinking and they keep educating so they can tell you something. It's not a reward for their intrinsic being. It's a calculated move on your part to suck everything out of them that's valuable as fast as you can. That's what a hierarchy of competence is for. And the idea that hierarchies of competence don't exist is it's so cynical. It's such a pathologically cynical idea. And it's actually quite patently untrue because here's an interesting tidbit from the psychological literature. Let's say you want to determine what the best predictors are for lifetime success in a Western society. Well, what would you hope for? How about intelligence? There'd be a good one. Let's hope the smart people occupy more positions of complexity, right? Because they're smarter. Would you want it any other way? Okay, and then so, and that's great. The number one predictor of accomplishment in Western societies is intelligence. So that means the system works. What's the number two predictor? Conscientiousness. Well, what's that? It's a trait marker for hard work. So who, who gets ahead? Smart people who work hard. Now, that doesn't account for every bit of the difference between people in terms of their hierarchical structure because hierarchies aren't perfect. They're corrupt. People get to the top sometimes because they're psychopathic, although, believe me, a hell of a lot less than you think because a psychopath has to keep moving from place to place because once he reveals himself as deceitful and untrustworthy, he has to go find new suckers to fleece. So the idea that, you know, there's no distinction between a CEO and a psychopath, it's like that's only made by someone who A, knows nothing about psychopaths, B, knows nothing about CEOs, and C, has something fundamental against the entire capitalist structure. Because it's simply not true. Corrupt, sometimes. Greedy, sometimes. Short-sighted, sometimes running companies that are doing their best to auger themselves into the ground. And so, you know, it's bad people running a dying organization. But generally speaking, it's not the case. Our hierarchies of competence are reasonably functional. And not only are they functional, they're valuable. We need to know who the competent people are, and we need to reward them. And even more importantly, we need to tell young people, hey, there's some hierarchies of competence out there. Like, a thousand of them. Go be a plumber, man. But be a good one, you know? Be an honest one. Be... I had a plumber once, you know? It was the night, it was the night before we were putting drywall in our house. We were redoing a house, and he had put in all the plastic piping, you know? And I was going to test the joints. They're supposed to be glued together with this pipe glue, right? And I said, I told him I had to test the joints. And he said, well, you don't have to test my joints. They never leak. And I thought, yeah, 
that's okay. How about if I test them? So I went up on the third floor and filled the pipes with water, capping them in the basement like you're supposed to. And like half an hour later, I had two inches of water in the basement. There were 30 leaking joints. And that was the night before the drywallers were supposed to show up. So, well, so he wasn't particularly competent. That's the point of that story. But even more so, he had put a bunch of the plastic pipe outside where the drywall would be. So it would have been sticking through the wall. So I spent a frenetic night, you know, sawing through plastic pipe and re-gluing joints so that my, well, so that the drywallers could come in. What's the point? If you're going to be a plumber, man, be a good plumber. Because otherwise all you do is go out there and cause trouble. We don't need people to cause more trouble. We need people to solve problems. You know, and so you can be a tradesman and you can be, you can make a lot of money as a tradesperson. It's a bloody, reliable, honorable, uh, forthright, productive way of making a living. And there is a hell of a lot of difference between a working man who knows what he's doing and one who doesn't, both in terms of skill and ethics, right? And you work with someone who knows what they're doing. It's a bloody pleasure. They tell you what they're going to do. They tell you how much it will cost. They go and do it. It works and you pay them. Perfect. Everyone's happy. And that's what happens when you have genuine hierarchies of competence. And so you, you listen to these panderers of egalitarianism and equity, and they fail to recognize completely that there are differences in rank between people. It's not such a terrible thing, man. Maybe you wouldn't be a great lawyer. Like, it's certainly possible. Most people aren't. But that doesn't mean there isn't something you could be great at. There's lots of hierarchies to attempt to climb, and if you fail in one, go try in another. But the point is, you're still trying to aim for the top. And what the hell are you going to do if you don't try to aim for the top? You know, flap about uselessly and whine about your life? It's not helpful. It'll just make you miserable. You're not reliable to anyone. You can't help out in a crisis. It's like, so you tell young people, and this is another message for conservatives, like, I don't care what you're going to do, but go out there and make something of yourself for God's sake. Be an honest person and work and get to the top of whatever it is that you want to get to the top of. You know, and, 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 and stand up for yourself like a respectable human being and be a bit of a light on the world instead of a blight, you know? And you can tell young people that and they haven't been told that by anyone now. And so the young men are so hungry for that that it's, it's painful to watch. They're so relieved when fi someone finally comes up and says, hey, you know, you, you get your act together a bit, discipline yourself, see if you can learn to tell the truth concentrate on something for a year or two you could be a bloody world beater they think really that's possible wow that would be that would be interesting that might make life or life worth living it's like yeah it might so why don't you go do it that's what the damn universities were supposed to be teaching people and they've forgotten that i went to harvard a month ago month and a half I used to teach there and i talked to a bunch of students you know and i told them it's not easy to get into harvard you know like you're a valedictorian if you're at harvard and not only are you a valedictorian, you're way better than most people at at least two other things, or you don't get in. And so, like, it's, I don't know what the acceptance rate is, like 5%, and believe me, not everybody applies. So it's a very selective school. And so why am I saying that? It's like, these are high-quality kids. So I told them what I just told you. It's like, here you are at Harvard. It's like, get yourself educated, man. Read some books. Learn to talk. Learn to think. Make yourself into something. Get the hell out there and make the world that put you here happy that you were put there in that great institution. You know, and they came up to me afterwards and said, God, I wish someone would have told us that when we were in our first year. 
It's like, Jesus, why didn't someone tell them that? For God's sake, it's supposed to be the greatest university in the world. Is it so difficult to figure that out? Well, it is if that isn't what you want to have happen in the university. You want to make cringing milksops who whine about being victims while they're going to Ivy League institutions. Jesus, it's pathetic. So when you know, if you watch yourself, you say, well, I had a particularly good day at work. And what does that mean? Well, it means that you lost your sense of time. Right? Because when you're having not a good day at work, it's like, first it's one minute to three, and then it's 45 seconds to three, and then it's 30 seconds. That's what school was like for me. It was like, click. <laughs> so funny, you know, I went, to, I went to my daughter's school. I used to get in trouble for talking all the time. Surprise, surprise. When I was a kid, and, uh, and I was bored stiff in school. And, and so I would misbehave upon occasion out of pure boredom. And about 21 years ago, I went to my daughter's school to sit for a class. It was about an hour long. And uh, I was sitting there, and the teacher had all the kids on the floor and was having some of the kids read to the others. And some of the kids who were reading couldn't read at all. And I had exactly the same experience. I was sitting there. It was like being, it was like being seven years old again. I could see the clock going, tick, <laughs> tick. And I thought, you know, if I was in this classroom for three days, I would misbehave. Forty years old, I would misbehave exactly like I did when I was when I was six. No. Well, that's no place to be, right? Because that's. You don't want to be in a place that's stultifying. You don't want to be in a place where there's no challenge. You might even quit your job if there's no challenge. Say, well, that's a good job. It gives you security. And you think, God, I can't stand this. It's eating away at my soul. It's all security and no challenge. So why do you want a challenge? Because that's what you're built for. That's what you're built for. You're built to take on a maximal load, right? Because that's what strengthens you. And you need to be strong because life is extraordinarily difficult. And because the evil king is always whittling away at the structure of the state. And you have to be awake and sharp to stop that from happening. So that you don't become corrupt. And so that your family doesn't become corrupt. And so that your state doesn't have to become become corrupt. You have to have your eyes open and your wits sharp and your words at the ready. And you have to be educated. And you have to know about your history. And you have to know how to think. And you have to know how to read. And you have to know how to speak. And you have to know how to aim And you have to be willing to hoist the troubles of the world up on your shoulders. And what's so interesting about that, so remarkable, and and this is something that's really manifested itself to me as I've been doing these public lectures. I've been talking about responsibility to people, which doesn't seem to happen very often anymore. And the audiences are dead quiet. And I lay out this idea that life is tragedy tainted by malevolence. And everyone says, yeah, well, we already always suspected that. But no one has ever said it quite so bluntly. And it's quite a relief to hear that I'm not the only person who has those suspicions. And then the second part of that is the better part. And it's the optimistic part, which is despite the fact that life is a tragedy tainted by malevolence at every level of existence, there's something about the human spirit that can thrive under precisely those conditions if we allow that to occur because as difficult as life is and as horrible as we are our capacity to deal with that catastrophe and to transcend that malevolent spirit is more powerful than the than that reality itself 
And that's the fundamental issue. I think that's the fundamental issue of the Judeo-Christian ethic with its emphasis on the divinity of the individual. As catastrophic as life is and as malevolent as people can be, and that's malevolent beyond belief fundamentally. A person has in spirit the nobility to set that right and to defeat evil. And that and that more than that, and that the antidote to the catastrophe of life and the suffering of life and the tragedy of life that can drive you down and destroy you is to take on exactly that responsibility and to say, well, there's plenty of work to be done and isn't that terrible. And there isn't anything so bad that we can't make it worse and certainly try very hard to do so. But I have it within me to decide that I'm going to stand up against that. I'm going to strive to make the world a better place. I'm going to strive to constrain the malevolence that's in my own heart and to set my family straight and to work to work despite my tragic lot for the betterment of anything, of everything that's in front of me. And the consequence of that, the immediate consequence of that is that when you make the decision to take on all of that voluntarily, which is to stand up straight, by the way, with your shoulders back, to take on that, all that on voluntarily. As soon as you make that decision, then all the catastrophe justifies itself in the nobility of your striving. And that's what it means to be an individual.